my first car was not so much what you would call reliable. Uh, it was German-made. In fact, it was a Mercedes, which I know what you're thinking. Really, your, your first car was a Mercedes. Okay, it was a 1990 Mercedes 190E. You can Google that later. And yeah, that's what I was riding around. That was the um, vehicle of choice. Anyways, it was not necessarily reliable, even though German cars have a reputation for being reliable. I remember uh, my junior year, as happens with the upperclassmen that aren't yet seniors, we had to park in the junior lot. Well, the junior lot was just a, a dirt field, which we have a lot of those in Texas. Um, and this one happened to be where the juniors parked their cars, which made rain a lot of fun uh, to try to get out of there not in a pickup truck, which Texas, again, a lot of pickup trucks, but I didn't have one. One particular uh, day, I remember pulling out of the, the lot, the junior lot, and you would think they would give you like a ramp to get out of the lot. They didn't. Uh, it was just a curb. So I was going down the curb to drive home, and I heard a, a loud thud after, I, after my back tires hit the ground. And so I hopped out of my car. I went behind my car, and there on the ground was my muffler. It just fell off. It was like, yeah, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. This whole being a muffler, hanging onto your car thing, I'm, I'm not, I'm I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't know anything about cars. I still know very little about cars. And uh, so I just looked around at the other teenagers who knew about as much about cars as I did. I said, do I need this thing to get home? They said, no. I said, sweet. So I popped my trunk. I threw it in my trunk, drove home, told my parents, hey, my muffler fell off at school. Uh, Another time I was driving and my bumper decided on the front of my car that it no longer wanted to hang on and be attached by the bolts. So I did what any other self-respecting high school student would do, and I got the duct tape, and I duct taped my bumper to my car. Well, my dad looked at that, and he said, you know, that's probably not going to hold up. So we we drilled a hole through the bumper, and we were not going for resale value on this thing. We drilled a hole through the bumper and just bolted it back on uh, as as best we could. That car died by, um, you know when you're at a stoplight? Well, you guys, of course you do. Hopefully you know what it looks like to stop at a stoplight. Um, so I was at a stoplight, not even like approaching. I was just at the stoplight, and there was a, uh, a Mitsubishi SUV in front of me, and the light didn't turn green, but I thought it did. Um, I didn't even accelerate. I took my foot off the brake, and the, this, this car idled, my car idled its way into the bumper of this Mitsubishi in front of me. The guy got out, and he was like, yeah, I'm good. Don't even worry about it. Like, didn't even touch the, the Mitsubishi. I kid you not, my car was totaled because I idled its way into the the fender of a car in front of me. That was my first car. Uh, Not the most reliable vehicle. But unlike my first car, thank God, unlike my first car, literally, um, we have a reliable Savior. We have a reliable God who never fails us. Two weeks ago, we looked at the dangers of apostasy. I I get that that was probably a troubling message for some. A message that was a little disconcerting to read. Man, this is crazy to think that it might be impossible to renew somebody again to repentance. And what does that look like? And, oh, man, I hope I never apostatize. And hopefully I laid some of those fears for you by pointing to the fact that apostasy is not something you accidentally do. It's a willful, outright rejection of Christ. But for the rest of us that are sitting here going, okay, so if I'm not going to apostatize, why not? Because remember, the the author's writing to a group in the the epistle to the Hebrews here who are facing persecution. Some of them facing imprisonment for their faith. They're not yet shedding their blood because he's going to say that later in the letter. But the, the heat is getting turned up on this church and they've got to have a reason why they shouldn't just jump ship 
or go back to Judaism. And on one side, the author's been holding out Jesus and saying, because Jesus is better. Jesus is, is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus' priesthood is better than the, the old priesthood. You don't want to go back to that. But now tonight, he's going to shift his focus a little bit to the Father, as we just sang about. He's going to shift his focus to the Father, and he's going to talk about the trustworthiness and the reliability of the Father. And because the Father can be relied on, because our Father is unchanging, we can have a confidence that it allows us to hold fast and endure and persevere in our faith no matter what happens to come our way. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. It says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if I, let me start there at the end there, that word Melchizedek. We left off Melchizedek. Remember when he said, hey, look, I have more to say about this, but right now I need to, to confront you because by this time you guys, you ought to be teachers and, and yet you've grown dull of hearing. You become sluggish, and, and I need to warn you against it. And, and we kind of covered that warning section. We're landing the plane on the warning section, and he's, he's next time we're together, which is in two weeks again, Hebrews chapter 7, he's going to return to the concept of Melchizedek. He's getting back there at the end of Hebrews chapter 6 here. So that's where we're going. But here initially, he's reminding us of the surety of God, of the reliability of God, of his character, of who he is, that he can be trusted. And that we can, no matter what happens in this world, no matter how much people threaten us, no matter how much people uh, try to take our lives away, try to take our freedoms away, try to silence us, we can say no in the face of that because the God that we serve is a reliable, trustworthy God. Verse 13, again, it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore an oath by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited, patiently waited, obtained the promise. When God has been calling us to endure in this letter, hold fast, don't give up your confidence. When he's been calling us to make sure that we are going to finish the course, finish the race, he's been calling us to endure because he's been calling us to trust in the faithfulness of his promises. That's our first point tonight. Trust God's promises. Trust God's promises. Do you know y'all have that friend that always promises to pay you back but never comes through? Don't look at anybody around your table. My son Luke is five. He's got that friend. So at his elementary school, they do Otter Pops and Smensels on Fridays. You guys are having throwbacks right now. Yeah. It just, just wait, it gets worse. As you get older, you start to follow Instagram accounts from the 80s and 90s and just nostalgia party going on. Um, but Otter Pops and Smetzels. So Luke, 
I mean, if you met Luke, Luke is a people person. Luke loves people to love him. And so when he's on the playground and it's lunchtime and Otter pops out and his buddy Ryan is there and Ryan's like, dude, I, I, don't, have, I don't have any money. Luke's like, it's okay, I got you, bro. And Luke whips out the cash and pays for the Otter Pop. Well, he, the other day, was talking to me and he said, Dad, I asked him, I said, Luke, did you get an Otter Pop today at school? He goes, no. I said, why not? He goes, well, it was Ryan's week to buy and he forgot. I was like, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, he's forgot five weeks in a row. It's like, okay, Luke, I think you're getting suckered, dude. Like, I think Ryan is a future businessman, a future con artist here, and you're a sucker is what I'm, I'm thinking is going on here. Yeah, Ryan promises he's going to come through, but he, he never comes through. I don't know Ryan, and so I'm not trying to badmouth Ryan. Ryan might be an upstanding young man who just has a short-term memory problem, but <laughs> you guys know what I'm driving at. It's that, hey, I promise I got you. I'll get you next time, and they don't. Y'all, God's promises don't fail us. When God says he will, he will. When God says he does, he does. When God says he won't, he won't. His promises are sure. And we have the track record contained here in the Bible of these promises and how they've come true and how they've been fulfilled time and time and time again. I mean, just consider the person of Jesus and how many of the Old Testament promises Jesus himself fulfilled. In fact, it's so difficult to count that it's difficult to, to pinpoint any theologian that's out there. You've got one guy that's like, oh, it's 54. Another guy's like, it's 107. Another guy's like, it's 355. The point is there's, a, there's a, a ton of ways that God has already fulfilled the promises that he's made and the promises that he's still fulfilling, that are still ongoing, that are more dynamic, that are not just a once-in-time fulfillment, but that are being fulfilled for us. God does not ever fail his promises. And our writer goes all the way back to Abraham. Again, writing to an audience familiar with Judaism to say the name Abraham is going to perk their ears up, just like earlier when he mentioned Moses. So now he's talking about Abraham. So they're like, wait a minute, Father Abraham had many sons, and I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right leg, right? So they're getting excited about Father Abraham. But he says this, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now, that concept we understand, and yet hopefully you're not swearing to God on anything, but it's that concept of the reason why people say that is because they're appealing to the highest authority that they can conceive of. They're saying, look, I, I want you to know I'm so serious about this. I swear to God this happened. Okay? That's not new. That would also happen back in the Old Testament times as well. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, God couldn't swear by, him, by a, another God because he's God. He couldn't swear by any higher authority. All he could do is swear by himself, and he says that's exactly what he did. He put his own integrity, his own character, his own personhood on the line when he made this promise to Abraham. An oath that says he swore by himself. Well, what do you swear? You swear an oath. And an oath is essentially the weightiest promise that a person can make. There is no greater or more weighty or serious promise that someone can make other than to swear an oath. It was a serious thing for the Israelites to, to undertake, and it was a serious thing for God to undertake. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 through 23, we read this about vowing vows, swearing oaths. He says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. If you're going to make a promise, make sure that you're serious about this, because God's going to hold you to it. 
But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. In other words, if you don't vow, God is not commanding you to swear an oath. God is not commanding you to, to take a vow. Verse 23, you shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. God cares about our integrity, in other words. Remember the story of Jephthah and his daughter, Jephthah's tragic vow that he said, look, whatever comes out of my door when I return home, that I will offer to the Lord. He's expecting Fido to come out of the door to greet him. It's not Fido, it's Fiona, it, whatever his daughter, his daughter's name was, I can't remember. But his daughter comes out to, to greet him. And he's grieved, and he, there's debate, did, what, was she just a virgin for the rest of her life because they wept for her virginity? No, I think he actually sacrificed the daughter. Was that pleasing to God? No, it wasn't pleasing to God, but God takes our vows seriously is the point there. Does that make sense? That our word means something. Deuteronomy 6.13, it is to the Lord your God you shall fear. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, rather. Him you shall serve, and by his name. Look, if you're going to swear by a name, don't swear by Baal. Don't swear by the Asherah. Don't swear by the, the gods of the foreign nations. If you are going to take an oath by a god, make sure it's the only god. In other words, by his name, he says, you shall swear. So God makes this oath. Can't swear by anything higher than himself. So in order to guarantee it, to make sure that people understood that this is serious, he swears by himself. And he says this. He promises to Abraham this offspring. Well, it's pointing back to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18, we read this. And God said, by myself, notice the, the language similar to the Hebrews passage. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. This is after Abraham offered up or was prepared to, to sacrifice Isaac. Because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. This is God's oath to Abraham, his swearing by himself. I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, notice this part here, pay specific and particular attention here. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's a promise that God makes to Abraham that through one of Abraham's descendants will all the nations of the earth be blessed. This isn't the first time he's made this promise. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Genesis 12, verse 3, as Abraham calls, as God calls rather Abram to leave and, and go to the, this land, he's promised. God is, is making a promise, an oath to Abraham at that point. Hey, by one of your offspring will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, fast forward to Galatians chapter 3. And the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and he says this about that promise, this promise of, of Genesis chapter 22, this promise by which God swore by himself, because there's no one greater to swear. Paul says, God preached the what to Abraham? The gospel to Abraham, saying, in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, how is that the, the gospel? Who's the fulfillment of that promise? Who is Abraham's offspring that is going to bring blessings to all the nations, including you and I sitting here tonight? Who is that person? Jesus. So we're dealing with the gospel when we're dealing with this oath that God made when he had no one higher to swear by, he swore by himself saying, look, I am going to provide a, an answer to, this, to the problem of sin. I'm going to provide Jesus. And God makes this oath to Abraham, this promise to Abraham and ties it directly to his character. God's saying, if this oath fails, then it's on me. Then it's my reputation. It's my character at stake. But y'all, like I just said, it's not just Abraham who's the recipient of this promise, but it's all the nations, which means it's you and I as recipients of this promise as well, that God swore by 
Who? By himself. Why? Because there was no one higher for him to appeal to. God has made promises to you and to me tonight that are guaranteed by who he is, by his character. Along those lines, the, the men's conference that we just had this week was about being anchored to the character of God, the word of God, the mission of God. Pastor Mike preached on being anchored to the character of God. Go back and listen to it. Ladies, you guys, y'all can listen to it too. It's, it's a, a great message to remind us of the significance and the greatness of the character of God, of what it is that God is saying, because I am this God, because I am omniscient, because I'm all powerful, because I'm good, I'm swearing by who I am and making this promise that you can take to the bank. And it's not just for Abraham, but it's for you as well. What are some of those promises that we find in God's word that are similarly promises that are made by him that we can trust in because of who he is? Because he will never fail us. How about this one? John 6, 37 through 39. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, promise, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Y'all, that's a promise to put away in your spiritual bank so that you can be comforted and encouraged by that as you need it. Jesus is saying, I've got you, is basically what he's saying there. I promise I will never let you go. This is not Rose on the boat, the Titanic, on the, the door floating in the, the ocean, where there's clearly enough room for Jack on that board, and she's like, I'm never going to let you go, and then the next thing she does is let him go. God is not Rose. You can tweet that. No, Jesus has got you. Seriously, though, he's got you. How about this one? Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. There's a promise. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And that's what's so important there. Because that's a promise that some people want to claim and say, well, that's awesome. Let me define good. If all things work together for my good, then I want to be the one that defines my good. The problem is you can't define your good because God defines your good. Because all things work together for our good according to his purpose. Not your purpose, his purpose. Well, what's our good then? Well, it, he continues on there. He says, for those whom he foreknew or purposed, uh, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what is God working all things together for in your life? but that you would be more like Jesus. Okay, that's a promise that you can take to the bank. That no matter what comes your way, the good and the bad, God is trying to shape you and mold you into the image of Jesus. That like Michelangelo with the, the, the block of marble that eventually became the David, right? God sees the David inside your life and is trying to get it out. And sometimes that's a violent process because the hammer has to hit the chisel and the big ugly sections have to be blocked off and chopped out of our lives. Other times, it's going to be the fine-tuned work of the, the, the sandpaper on the marble to remove some of the, the rough spots in our lives. But all the while, you can have confidence through the pain because of the promise here that God is working to conform you more to the image of Jesus. And you can trust in God's promise. Why? Because you can trust God, because you can trust his character and who he is. Another one, Isaiah 26, 3 through 4. Isaiah 26, 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace. There's the promise. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God promise is an everlasting rock. It's 
pushes my mind to Philippians chapter 4, right? Do not be anxious for anything. But in all things through prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. Promise and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise for you to hold on to. That you can trust is reliable because the God who promised it is reliable. Y'all, if you want your faith to be strengthened, remind yourself of these promises on a regular basis. Encourage yourself in your faith by reminding yourself, look for these promises. When you're doing your daily Bible reading, ask yourself, what promises am I encountering as I'm reading this? That maybe your eyes otherwise would just glaze over. But start paying attention. Start looking for what God is promising you and realize that these promises are certain because of who he is. We can trust in God's promises. Because again, he anchors them to himself. Look at verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Again, we're saying, well, why, why not apostatize? Because sometimes it, makes, it seems to make a whole lot of sense to jump ship on this whole Christianity thing, especially it gets harder. He's saying, look, remember, we who have fled for refuge to God, we can have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope that is set before us because of the promises of God. He says, look, people swear by something greater than themselves, right? We talked about that earlier. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. What he means there is that when, when somebody would say, I swear an oath that this is true, okay? In today's culture and society, there are way too many Ryans running around out there, right? So if somebody is to say, I promise you this is true, it doesn't hold a lot of weight anymore, so somebody's word in our culture today, unfortunately, tragically so, does not hold a whole lot of weight. But it used to. In this context, it did. Especially within the church community. The church community that's emerging out of the, 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 the echoes of the Isra- Israelite community. Where they were looking back at passages like the one in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that we read earlier tonight that talks about, hey, look, if you're going to vow a vow, be sure that you fulfill it because God's going to keep you to that. A person's word used to mean a lot more than it does today. And so the author's saying, look, when somebody was in a dispute, they wouldn't go to, I swear to you this is true unless it was absolutely, undeniably true. And that's what he's saying God has done for us. Look, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God then desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with his own promise. Y'all, not only can we trust God's promises, but like I've already alluded to a couple times tonight, the reason why we can trust his promises is because of who he anchors his promises to, and that's himself. You trust his promises. Point number two tonight, trust his character. Trust his character. Consider this list and and ask yourself, okay, who are you going to trust more? A murderer, a drug dealer, a lawyer, a teacher, a police officer, a judge, 
my guess, uh, although there's the cynical ones of you out there going, maybe it's a corrupt police officer, maybe it's a bad lawyer, maybe it's a bribed judge. You get the point of the argument, though, right? As the character of the people increase, your trust is going to increase in them. If a murderer promises you something, you're probably not going to hold a whole lot of anticipation that they're going to come through on their word, are you? If a drug dealer promises you something, you're going to go, I, yeah, I'm not going to bank anything significant on that. If your lawyer, maybe you're a defendant in that case, promises, I promise you I'm going to get you off this charge. Well, you're going to be hopeful that he's going to come through, and maybe you're going to have a little bit more confidence in that regard. If your teacher says, hey, look, I, I promise you that by the end of the semester, you're going to understand what we're talking about. Again, hopefully you're going to trust your teacher's character and go, okay, I, I, yeah, I believe that. Your, your confidence is going up. If a police officer is there with you and says, look, I promise you I'm going to protect you as you cross the street. I'm going to stop traffic and you can cross the street. I promise you you'll be safe. Okay, you're going to, your trust level is going to go up, right? And if the judge says, I promise you, that today you're going to walk out of this courtroom a free man because I'm going to declare you not guilty. You're going to go, okay, he's got the authority and the power to do that, and his character is good. I'm going to trust this judge to do that. We all, if our trust goes up with the character of the individual on a human level, how much more trust should we have in the character of God? That when God promises something, he's going to do it. Numbers 23, 19 talks about this God and his character. God is not a man that he should lie. God doesn't lie. Or the son of man that he should change his mind? He's not going to be fickle and be like, I was going to do this. No, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do this over here. I'm not going to work all things together for your good anymore. I'm going to work all things together for your annoyance now. Yeah, because that's more fun. He's not like that. He has said, will he not do it? The implied answer is, of course he will. Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Yes, he will fulfill it. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny us. Is that what it says? Mm -mm. It says he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. And he's sworn by himself that you and I are going to be delivered through Jesus if we have faith and, and, and trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's why God is not going to deny us. Because to deny us would impugn his own character because he's sworn by himself that he won't deny us. And God will not lie. See, the promises are anchored to his character. God takes his promises seriously. And it's one of the reasons why he cares that we would take our promises seriously. Like we read in Deuteronomy 23. If you're going to vow a vow, make sure you do it. Why? Because God, when he vows a vow, fulfills that vow. And God has vowed that he would bless the nations through Abraham. And if you know Christ, you know that blessing. You know the offspring that has brought blessing to all of the nations. God's character cannot allow him, allow him to do anything but to be faithful to the promises that he's made. He has to remain faithful to the promises he's made. It's part of who he is as God. That's why it says as we continue in the text, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heir, the, uh, more convincing to the heir, so the promise, heirs of the promise, sorry, that's what I get for typos, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Uh, that phrase more con convincingly means greater, exceedingly, zealously. That God was zealous to show us the, the guaranteed nature of the, the, the promises. The Lexham English Bible says, because he wanted to show even more the unchangeable character of his promises. He swore this oath. 
Y'all, here's the thing. It's the promise connected to the character. Because God can't change, right? God is immutable. That's, that means he is unchanging. That's part of his character, who he is. I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? God never changes, ever. And because his character is unchangeable, his promises are unalterable. Because his character never fails, his promises never fail. Because the two are inseparably connected to one another. He guaranteed it, it says, with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What are those two things? His promises and his oath. He can't fail to keep his promise because his promise is connected to his character. And he can't fail to keep his oath because to fail to keep the oath would have made him uh, an unfaithful God. And he cannot be an unfaithful God. He cannot deny himself. So that by those two things which is in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We who have fled for refuge. If you think about your life and your alienation from a holy God, right? Because God's part of God's character is that he's holy. Yes? In fact, that's a massive part of God's character. The angels around the throne are singing what? Holy, holy, holy. His otherness, his uniqueness. It's what makes us aware of our sin is his holiness. It makes us aware of our, our, the fact that we fall short of his holiness, that we are not holy the way that he is holy. And it reveals that we have this massive problem, that, that, that there's this unspannable gap between us and God. And as you and I think about our sin problem, we want refuge from this holy God because his holiness, the only right response from his holiness to our sinfulness is wrath. So when we understand that, and Romans 1 says even the lost world understands that because the law of God is written on their hearts, their conscience testifies against them that they are sinful. When we understand this, they're really, it, it boils down to there's, there's two options to whom we can flee for refuge. There's two castles, if I can put it that way and use that illustration. You've got one castle, and on the exterior, it looks promising. It looks strong. It looks fortified. It looks sturdy. It looks like you're going to go in this castle and be okay. That castle is the law. That castle says, for you to be right with God, you need to do, 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 and don't stop doing you need to obey, you need to obey, you need to obey. You need to conform, you need to conform, you need to conform. You need to be, not stop sinning. Stop sinning and you'll be right with God. Stop sinning. That's the beckon from that castle. Come here and you can be right with God as long as you come here and clean yourself up is this castle. The problem with that castle is as soon as you step foot through the door, it's like one of those studio facades. If you've ever gone on a studio tour before, there's nothing behind it. There's no walls. There's no substance because that facade can't do anything for you. You're vulnerable and exposed on the other side of that wall just like you were before you ever entered. But the other castle, again, looks strong and sturdy and sound because it is. And that castle, y'all, is Christ. And it's to flee for refuge, as the author is saying here, in the promises of God, the promise that he will forgive you promise that he will reconcile you, the promise that he will make you a new creation, 
The promise that he will not condemn you. The promise that you will be justified. The promise that you will live forever and eternity with him. The promise that there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease. Those promises are the promises that make up the, the exterior, the walls, the very foundation of the castle that is Christ. And if you flee for refuge there, what our author is saying here is, look, when we flee for refuge, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us because there's genuine, true refuge in Christ. Saying, I can't, I can't do what the, the, the facade of the law castle wants me to do. I can't clean myself up. I need the righteousness of Christ, not the righteousness of, of man. We flee for refuge from what? From sin. We flee to the character of God and his promises for refuge from the world and its opposition to him. We flee for refuge to God and his promises from Satan, from the enemy. Y'all, God didn't have to provide any of the promises that he's provided for us in scripture. God could have given us bullet point outlines of the gospel and made it sterile and transactional and left us to wonder, is this really going to work? But because of his character, because he's good, because he's loving, because he's a unique God, unlike any of the other gods in this world, he provided not only the way to him, but also the promises that we can trust him. And we can hold fast in those promises he anchored to his character so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before him. Y'all, your trust cannot be in a pastor. It cannot be in a leader. It cannot be in any other human being because we are not worthy of your confidence like God is worthy of your confidence because he never changes and his word never fails. His promises never fail because his character never fails. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. It's the second time in two verses there that he's used that word hope. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now is where we get to the provision. See, he, he gave the promises, and the promises are sure because of his character, but the promises point to our third point, which is his provision. Trust God's provision. That's our final point tonight. Don't just trust the promises and trust the promises because of his character, but also now trust that the, the, the promises that he made by anchoring them to who he is provided for us the one that we need, the solution to our sin problem, and that is the one Jesus Christ. If God promised these future blessings and yet never provided for us, they'd be meaningless. But a promise only comes to, to fulfillment, to, to fruition, when it is actually realized. If I promise my kids on the way home from church, we will stop at McDonald's. If we don't stop at McDonald's, my promise is empty. It's, it's vain. It's pointless. It's meaningless. And I'm a fraud. But if on the way home from church, we stop at McDonald's, then I'm fulfilling my promise by the provision of what I've promised. The author says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have this. Notice the, the language there. Presently, presently, we have the fulfillment of this promise that God swore to Abraham. 
all the way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. What is that? What is the fulfillment? It's the anchor of the soul. Who is the anchor of the soul? It's Jesus. Who's the steadfast hope that we have? It's Jesus. He says it's a sure and steadfast anchor. That word sure means it's, it's certain. It's definite. Man, in a world of uncertainty, there's a certain definite provision that God has made for you and me that's the anchor of our soul in Jesus. It's sure and it's steadfast. It's firm. It's reliable. It's fully confirmed. It's not in doubt in any way, shape, or form. And it's the anchor of our souls, of our very life. What does an anchor do? It holds you in place. The anchors at this time were, depending on when it was written, it was either a a heavy stone attached to a rope that was just tossed, you know, rudimentally over the side of a boat, or they had begun to to actually create wooden anchors that they would weigh down with uh, with chains and things. And so the, the, the authors would have known what an anchor is and what it's supposed to do. And it wasn't long after this that they began to create iron anchors like the ones that we have today. And an, an anchor hits the, the floor of the seabed and it's meant to dig in so that it's not going anywhere. And it holds the, the ship where it's supposed to be. Well, notice we have this sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. This is the provision. It's a hope that does what? That enters in. Where is the anchor? Where is it that enters into the inner place behind the curtain? Some commentators think he's jumping ship, no pun intended, on metaphors right here. That he's leaving behind the anchor, the nautical metaphor, now he's in the the, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. I don't think he's schizophrenic as he's writing this. I think he's intentional with every word that he's chosen here. I think he's saying we have an anchor, something that is holding us fast and not allowing us to be shifted or moved. God has provided this anchor, and you know where he's placed it? In the Holy of Holies. He's placed it in his very presence. And what is anchored in the presence of God? Your soul, your life, your eternity. It's unmovable. It is there anchored to the Father. It's not going anywhere. A place where, remember, in the Old Testament, nobody was allowed in there, but the high priest once a year was allowed behind the curtain. There was no anchor behind the curtain. In fact, the high priest went in behind the curtain fearful every year that he would do something sinful in the presence of the Holy of Holies, and he's gone. He's dead on the, on the spot. There's no certainty about the Holy of Holies until Jesus, who God provides because he's the fil- fulfillment of the promise that he made for us, because he had to fulfill the promise because of the character of the God that we worship, and that means that he's provided And he provided Jesus. He provided the one through whom the blessings would come to all the nations. And Jesus has entered behind the curtain. And he's anchored there. We'll see in chapter 7 that he's ever living to make intercession for us right there in the presence of the Father. That we have a security. We have a sure and steadfast. We have a certain, definite, reliable, fully confirmed hope. And that is Jesus. Where Jesus has gone. Where Jesus has gone. Jesus is the anchor for our soul. Our high priest. The one who's gone before the Father for us. And nothing can change that. And notice what he says there. As a forerunner. 
He's gone there to the presence of God as a forerunner on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul talks about the importance of the resurrection. He says in verse 12, look, if we preach Christ as proclaimed, as, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is, is pointless. It's in vain, and our faith is in vain. In fact, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he's the one that raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, our faith, is futile. It's pointless. And you're, you're still in your sins. Your sin has not been dealt with. It's not been addressed. And you are still infinitely separated from a holy God. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we of all people are most to be pitied. Verse 20, but, but in fact, indeed, certainly, surely, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, right? So Paul's arguing in 1 Corinthians 15, what we're talking about here, that Jesus is the forerunner, that Jesus is in the presence of God the Father, where you and I will one day go as well, because he's the firstfruits. He's there holding our place until we get there. Remember what Jesus told his disciples, John chapter 14. Hey, uh, Jesus, wh where are you going? We want to go. You know where I'm going. We don't know where you're going, Jesus. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you. Where? In the presence of the Father. And you have a sure and steadfast hope right now. You, know, you guys need hope. We need hope. This is not a world that peddles a message of hope. There's a lot in this world that's going to rob you of hope. And you get older, guys, and I, I'm just telling you that, that multiplies. You get married, and there's all kinds of things that this world wants to do to attack the hope of your marriage. You have kids all kinds of things this world wants to do to attack the hope of, of having kids, of having a family. You need something to anchor yourself to as far as hope is concerned. And we have it in Christ. We have it in the one that God has provided for us. Because he's sworn an oath by himself and it's impossible for him to lie. Why is it impossible for God to lie? Because of who he is, because of his character. And so he has provided for us, Jesus, the one who has gone behind the curtain as the forerunner on our behalf. Y'all, God is reliable. So you think about your endurance, holding fast 
let me tell you guys, you are up against opposition to staying faithful to the Lord, unlike anything that any generation in recent history has encountered. But you have Christ, right? So you can hold fast in Christ, knowing that he's anchored to the only thing, the only one that matters, and that's the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful. So very grateful. And not enough. For the anchor that we have, the anchor of our soul. We're grateful that Jesus has entered behind the curtain as the forerunner on our behalf. We're grateful that you did not just abandon us as some experiment gone wrong. We're grateful that you did not just give us an outline of how to get right with you, but also provided your promises. We're grateful that you are a God who does not lie. We're grateful that you are a God who does not change. We're grateful that you are a God who is good So God, we pray that we would be entrenched even further in a hope, not in anything that this world can offer or provide, but a hope that's anchored to our anchor, that's anchored to Christ, the one who has paid the penalty for our sins, the one that has indeed, as Paul said, certainly risen from the dead as the first fruits of those who will follow after him. God, we are thankful for that reality. I pray for every single person here in this room tonight, Lord, that their hope would be fixated, immovably fixated on Christ. I know there are valleys that are being walked through in this room tonight, and yet Christ is sure. He's steady. He's steadfast. He's immovable. He is where he has always been, and God is still doing what he has always been doing, and that is working to shape us, mold us, conform us into the image of Jesus. So Lord, I pray, ask that you would lead these brothers and sisters out of the valleys that they walk through, but in the meantime, comfort them with the hope that is sure because your promises are sure, because your character is sure. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.